the scripture reading today is from Matthew 2, 1 through 12 from the Message Translation. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem Village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. We're on a pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. And not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and the religious scholars in the city together and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him, Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote it plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east. Pretending to be as devout as they were, he got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them the prophecy about the Bethlehem and said, Go find this child. Leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word, and I'll join you at once in your worship. Instructed by the king, they set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. In a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod. So they worked out another route, left the territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. This is the word of the Lord. Let me read you a story um, called Home by Another Way by one of my favorite writers, Barbara Brown Taylor. She wrote a children's book called Home by Another Way. Once upon a time, there were three very wise men who were all sitting in their own countries, minding their own business, when a bright star lodged in the right eye of each of them. The star was so bright that none of them could tell whether it was burning in the sky or in their own imaginations. But they were wise enough to know that it did not matter all that much. The point was something beyond them was calling them, and it was a tug they had been waiting for all their lives. Each in his own country had tried books, tried magic, tried astrology, one had lived on nothing but dry herbs and boiled in water. Another had spent his entire fortune learning how to read and write in an ancient language. The third had learned to walk on hot coals, though it did nothing for him beyond the great sense of relief he felt at the end. Despite their best efforts, all three of them still felt that something was missing. They were all glad for a reason to get out of town, which was clearly where the star was calling them out away from everything they knew how to manage and survive, out from under their reputations they had built for themselves, the high expectations and the disappointing returns. And so they set out one by one, each believing that he was the only one with a star in his eye until they all ran into one another on the road to Jerusalem. From a distance, each thought the other to be a mirage at first, a twinkling reflection made of vapor and heat. But as they drew near to one another, they saw the star they had in common, like a tattoo or a secret handshake, something that made them brothers before they even spoke. They all believed that the star was leading them to Jerusalem, and this made perfect sense, 
because they had every reason to believe that they were on their way to meet a king. They had no trouble gaining entrance to the palace. They looked rich, and that was enough to get them to a royal audience. Now, that's a message in and of itself, is it not? We, we have to move on. The king they met was something of a disappointment. Now, this is a children's book, okay, so bear with it, all right? He was lumpy and rumpled, and he had terrible breath. His skin looked a funny orange color and sickly as if his bile had gotten the best of him. The guards on either side of him shook in fear of their king, so much that their spears rattled against their shields. Without even comparing notes, the wise men knew he was not the person they were looking for. Do you know of any other kings in the general area, they asked him. He had been picking his fingernails until then, letting them know how bored he was, but their question got his attention. He looked right at them for the first time. That's when he saw the star in each of their eyes. His own grew perfectly round, like the eyes of a snake. The king asked the wise men if they would please excuse him for a moment. Then he stepped into his private chapel to confer with his clergy. They whipped out their old reference books, which smelled of mold, and told the king what he wanted to know. Yes, they said, there was something in the book of Micah about a new ruler for Israel, but nothing to get excited about. It was short. It had been there for a long time, and it was unlikely that the men in the other room were fulfilling that prophecy. But sure, why not? Send the wise men to Bethlehem to check it out, to save the king a little money instead of doing his own research. Another sermon for another day. So that was what the king did. He gargled, combed his hair, and went back to tell the wise men they should go to Bethlehem at once with his blessing, on one condition, that they come back and tell him who his successor was so that he could um, <clears throat> send flowers to the new king. His breath smelled like pine saw when he said it, which made the wise men feel queasy. They knew something was not right. But once they were back out in the night air, they could see the star in the sky again and set their minds at rest. They followed it right to the doorway of a one-room house in Bethlehem. It was a perfectly nice place, modest but well-built, though not the kind of place where they had expected to find a king. A dog was sniffing the wood pile under the eaves in hopes of a mouse. Someone was practicing the lute next door, going over the same notes again and again. The smell of dinner was still in the air. Wheat cakes cooked on a griddle greased with sheep's fat, lentils, and lots of garlic and rice. The place looked so simple, they might have never chosen it for themselves. But since the star had chosen it for them, they knocked. When the door opened, the couple standing behind it almost died of fright. Not that the wise men noticed. With their arms full of gifts, they crowded into the small space, bumping their turbans on the rafters and snagging their robes on the rough furniture. All they could see was the baby, who was not afraid, and whose right eyes shone with the same star that they had seen before they ever left home. It was him, then whoever he was. They did not have a clue, but they knew what to do. They got on their knees and bowed their heads. Then they gave them the things they had brought for him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all the wrong things they could see now, things he had no use for. They should have brought him goat's milk, a warm blanket, something shiny to hang above his crib, but how could they have guessed? The child's parents were gracious. They thanked the strangers for their expensive gifts and held them up for the baby to see. 
Then to the wise men's complete surprise, the child's mother picked him up and handed him around so that each of them held that damp, soft, living weight in his arms. When they were finished admiring him, she took her baby back, nursed him, and put him to bed. Then, before the light coming through the window of the house had gone entirely out, the three wise men fell asleep right where they sat. In the morning when they woke, the wise men could not find their stars anywhere. They searched each other's eyes, but the stars were gone. Frantically, they looked in all the corners and under the chairs. The baby's mother even shook out his blankets, but still, no stars. Soon the wise men calmed down and said, Never mind, we do not need them anymore. They had found what they were looking for, something that they could not lose. As much as they hated to, they added, they had better be on their way. They would not be going back through Jerusalem, they said. All three of them had woken from the same identical dream, warning them, warning them to steer clear of the city. If anyone in Jerusalem knew anything at all, they would be here instead of there. Besides, none of the wise men's old maps worked anymore. They would have to find a new way home. So the wise men picked up their packs, which were lighter than before. Then they lined up in front of the baby to thank him for the gifts he had given them. What in the world are you talking about, the baby's mother said, laughing. For the scent and weight and skin of a baby, said the first wise man, who had no interest in living on herbs anymore. For this home and the love here, said the second wise man, who could not remember how to say it in the ancient language. For a really great story said the third wise man, who thought that telling it might do a lot more for him than walking on hot coals. Then a wise man walked outside, stretched, kissed the baby goodbye, and went home by another way. I do love the word epiphany. I, all of you probably know by now those of you don't, let me remind, let me tell you. I, I didn't grow up in a liturgical church, so I'm not familiar with some of these things. And so this is a passage that I've heard, but not really in this way tied to this epiphany, the thing that we do in, um, in churches to celebrate uh, the Magi coming to Jesus. And so I was doing some research on, on epiphanies, and uh, the, the dictionary calls it a, a, usually it's a sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something, or it's an intuitive grasp of reality through something, such as an event, usually simple and striking, or an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. I couldn't help when I was reading these, these uh, definitions of epiphany. Uh, you remember how Oprah on her show years ago would say the aha moment? Y'all remember Oprah saying that? I couldn't help but think of that, like the epiphany is the... Aha moment. One moment we don't see something very clearly. Or we think we do, but we really don't. And then in a matter of an instant, we get it. We see what is true. It was foggy or hidden from us. And when that veil is lifted, we see what is true and what has been true all along. Seeing the truth of a circumstance or a person or a belief system can be life-altering. Um, I found out last night that, uh, about a uh, Christian female author, Lisa Turquist. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right. Is that right, Christina? Close. Turquist? Turkhurst. Thank you, Turkhurst. 
um, a few years ago, she had shared that um, her marriage had fallen apart and um, her husband had not been loyal to his vows. And, but they made the decision to come back together and try to make it work and make the marriage work. And they went through counseling and they did all the things that you need to do to try to restore a relationship like that. And they even had a, I think they had a, uh, a renewing of their vows with like this big, beautiful thing. And, um, and somebody sent me a text last night um, saying that uh, she had announced on Facebook that they had decided to part, that, that the reconciliation did not work. And Lisa says in that Facebook post that sometimes God restores a relationship and sometimes God rescues us from a, from a relationship. Sometimes epiphanies can be hard when we finally see the full truth and we realize this is not going to be easy to walk through. This is not going to be easy to deal with. But it is what's necessary. It is what, what is healthy for us. Seeing the truth can be painful, and it may mean that we lose something or a person or her belief system. But for the Magi, seeing the truth led them to beautiful things, to joy, to new community, to love. I asked you yesterday if, if any, any one of you would like to share an epiphany that you have had at one point in your life. Um, I've tried to think of some. A lot of them are like painful and depressing, though. Uh, I, I, I'm sure there's some happy ones somewhere, but I, I was just coming up empty. I don't know if that's an Enneagram 4 thing. I don't. Christina, you're the expert. I, I think it might be an Enneagram 4 thing that we just are sad, right? Anybody in the room have an epiphany that you would like to share with us? Douglas Hare writes of uh, this moment in this way. The holy family in this story is entirely passive. Joseph is not even mentioned. Mary is seen but not heard, especially to be noted is the fact that the miraculous child does nothing. This is what was interesting to me. He does not miraculously speak, as occasionally is the case in ancient birth narratives of extraordinary persons. He is not rendered more awesome by being given flames of fire to eat, as is done to the infant Elijah in the lives of the prophets. It's a document that's roughly contemporary with the gospel. Despite his supernatural conception, the child is here portrayed with great restraint, no literary halo is placed over his head. To me, that gives more credence that the birth story was real because it wasn't given that supernatural tinge to the story that we look at and go, I don't know, maybe that, I don't, ew. no, it's just a, just a baby. It's just a baby that was born and just a baby. To me, it's a reminder that, just as Renee was saying earlier, that this is simple. These were just common people in a common place in Podunk. Not anything fancy, not anything wealthy, not anything powerful, just humble people. Very divine, while being very much human. The Magi, or astrologers, are from a priestly caste from Persia or Babylon. They are experts of the astrology and interpretation of dreams. 
Now, there's three things that I want to, us to be encouraged by from this passage. Yeah, it's a three-point sermon. I'm sorry. But there's no alliteration. You will be happy. I did no alliteration. I don't know that I've ever done a three-point sermon, so give me some grace here, okay? Reverend Sarah R. says of this story that there is light in the darkness. Choose that. The first thing that I want to share with you is that we choose to see the light in the darkness. Now, granted, the Magi had this huge neon light <laughs> guiding them along the way. Unfortunately, we don't. Has anybody ever had that happen to them? Like you're in a situation you don't know what to do or where to go, and it's dark, and you have the neon sign to come up this way, this way, this. Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Doesn't work that way, does it? However, there had to be people around them that either didn't notice the star at all or did notice it and thought, oh, that's really bright, how cool, and went on about their lives. But these people did not. I don't know how many there were. We say three because of the gifts, but it could have been more. But they chose not to just see that light, but to do something about it, to give up comforts and what they knew and go to a strange land they'd never been to before, to figure out what is going on here because they knew that had to mean something special. That had to be something big and they wanted to be a part of it. Now, whether it took the Magi a few weeks, a few months, or two years, I've looked at a lot of different commentaries and there's no real consensus on that. Probably not in the manger. How many of you have manger scenes in your homes and you put the wise men across the room or outside the manger? I've always done that. You probably have too. But there's really no way to know for sure. But these magi went out on their journey following that star. They chose. They would not be deterred. No one talked them out of this. No one, not an emergency, sent them back home. They, were no, didn't, they worried, weren't worried about inclement weather or bandits along the way. They chose to see this light in the darkness, and they did something about it. You and I typically fly by blind in these kind of circumstances. We don't know what to do, where to go, how to do it, what's next when we're surrounded by darkness. But we do have some resources to help us during these dark times, too, in particular. We have our community, and we have our own choices to make in that moment of darkness. We get to decide how we will walk in that darkness community. This community should be a safe place for us to hold on to in dark times. Our church people should be a place where even if no one in this community can do anything about our darkness, they can walk alongside us, holding our hand, praying for us, cheering us on, helping us with resources that we might need. The church at its best is this. A lot of times when circumstances are dark, I think probably it's very much human nature to withdraw or retreat. We don't want to talk about it. We don't, we don't want people to know about it. Sometimes there's embarrassment or shame. Or we think we did this to ourselves so no one would have sympathy for us. Or we just think we'll fix this ourselves. But we are made for community. And at its best, the church should be a healthy and safe place. Rachel Held Evans says, There's a difference between curing and healing. And I believe the church is called to the slow and difficult work of healing. 
We are called to enter into one another's pain, anoint it as holy, and stick around no matter the outcome. I hope that this church community is that for you when you need it. I hope that that you are, and you are that for me when I need it, which I need it a lot. But another resource that we have when times are dark is our ability to make choices. Choices about how I will view this darkness, how I will act during it, and how I will walk through it. Look, if we need to shut everything down and rest and just get away and retreat for a while, absolutely you do that if that's what's best for you. That can be the very first and healthiest thing you could do. But we don't need to stay there. At some point, we have to come out of that retreat because we do need community. The Magi chose to see the light when others didn't. And we have to choose to see the light too or we will miss it. This was not, uh, for the people that did not see this star, did not see this event that was going on, they missed the epiphany. It was not an epiphany for them. It didn't turn their lives upside down like it did for the Magi. They chose to see it, and then they chose to see, chose to do something about it. Find the light somewhere. Find the light in someone. Find the light, even if all you can choose to see is that you are still breathing. If that's all you got for this moment, that's still, that's still choosing to see the light. It won't always be this dark. Hold on to that one place where you see light. The second point that I want to share with you is this. The Magi did not rely on earthly power structures to get themselves home. From Sanctified Art, the writer says, they saw clearly the difference between divine and corrupt power. We could use some discernment in this area, could we not? These power structures, whether they are through a person or a system, Herod was clearly a leader with a level of toxicity. And, you know, they didn't know this, but Herod could have decided to chase them down and see what they did, and then when they didn't do what he asked them to kill them there, they didn't know. They didn't know that he wouldn't follow them home, maybe kill them, maybe kill their families, people they loved. But all they knew was that this, this was a powerful man in this powerful system, and he was not the way home. He wasn't it. They knew that. Sometimes the things that are supposed to work to get us out of darkness don't work. Sometimes doing things the right way, such as obeying a king or a system, is not the right thing to do. So, my final point is this. Our paths out of darkness are not a one-size-fits-all. What works for me will not always work for you, and what worked for me last time may not work the next time. Now, being with you in community, if we're talking about something and you're sharing with me how your life is topsy-turvy and it's dark and you're scared and you're anxious and you're lonely, I can offer you things that have worked for me. And it may not be an epiphany for you when I share that, but it may be that when you leave, you think, oh, wait a minute, I could do that. And I don't mean just me personally. I mean somebody in our community. There's healing in being able to share those stories of what has worked for us, where we saw the light. But don't be surprised if we have to get home by another way. 
I've shared both of these stories before, and so I apologize that you have to hear both of them again. But you are. Several years ago, I have had night terrors since I was about 13 or 14 years old, and um, there was a time when we lived in Tupelo uh, that they were very bad. I would have up to two every night. And my children were little, and it was traumatizing for them to watch how I behaved, and it was just disruptive to our whole family. And it was just awful. It was one of the darkest moments of my life. This went on for about six months. Um, I had a group of ladies come over to my house on Tuesdays, every Tuesday, and we would pray, pray over the house. And finally I got desperate, and I would just open up um, the Psalm 91 where it says, he will be a he will be a refuge, and a, we can rest under his wings. And I would take the Psalm ninety one, and I would just open up the Bible and lay Psalm ninety one on my head as I went to sleep. And I had the Bible on CD, and I would just play play that out loud throughout the night. It did bring some comfort. There's a whole other other side to that story I'll share with you someday. That's interesting, but not today. That worked for me. That worked for me in that point, that prayer, that scripture, the word of God, that worked for me. But it hasn't always worked for me. Am I allowed to be that honest? That sometimes it just doesn't work. When I was going through my divorce, I uh, went to my pastor, Robbie, and told him what was going on and, uh, you know, just spilling my heart out and all these things, and I'm thinking he's going to give me a nice book to recommend because we are both readers, and I thought he's going to recommend a good book, and we're going to get this thing fixed, and it's not going to be so bad, and da-da-da-da. And what he recommended was Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know if you've read this or if you've seen the Julia Roberts movie, but this is not necessarily Christianity-based. Now, there are some elements of Christ-likeness in the book, but it's not necessarily that. I, I, I hope you can see just a little bit of how marked up. This thing is like, I'm horrible on books. And if you loan me one, don't be prepared to not receive it back the same way I, you gave it to me. I'm sorry. I, it's, just, it's just the truth. Yeah, this thing is all marked up. This worked that time. I don't remember praying during those months. I probably did. They were probably like breath prayers, like, oh, God, help me, and kept on going. There was no like systematic way of getting it out of my bed every morning and spending 30 minutes in a quiet time and calling all my friends together and pray over me. And There was none of that because I didn't have it. I did not have it. There was no reading the scripture for me. It didn't work. Not in that moment. But this did. Go figure. And here's one thing I would like to say to all of us. No one else gets to tell us, gets to spiritualize the hardship we might be in. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because people that I've grown up with and knew my whole life, they would have said, this is not the way. This is not going to help you in your darkness. You're messing up. You need to get back to the Word, to pray. And that's true. That's also true. But sometimes it just doesn't work. I don't, know what, I don't know any other way to say it. It just doesn't work. And nobody has the right to spiritualize that for you or for me. You find what works for you in that moment of darkness. 
Because sometimes the epiphany does not look what look like what we think it should, what it's supposed to look like. Several weeks ago, uh, Lisa McCormick was here and doing a demonstration for Godly Play. And I don't know if you could hear this one particular child down here, but I could. Uh, I don't even know who it was. She was I was sitting on the floor, and she, this child was sitting in front of me. It was her back that I could see. I don't remember who the child was. So Lisa is telling the story of um, when the Israelites were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so she's like, you know, she's demonstrating this story, and she does the temple in Jerusalem, and then she's in the sandbox, okay? And so she takes the people, and she puts them in Babylon. But she says, even though they were in captivity, God was still with them. God didn't stay in Jerusalem. God went with them. So at the end of the story, she asked the children, what did they learn? What, what was something they saw in that story that meant something to them? And this child said that whether the people stayed in Babylon or not, it was their choice. God was with them because God was not in one spot. God was everywhere and in everything. God was even in Babylon. That was an epiphany for me through that child. I think it was an epiphany for her too. I hope it was. I hope it's something that she remembers and clings to. Madeline Langle from The Irrational Season says this. There have been times when I've been so angry or so hurt that I thought my love would never recover. And then... In the midst of a near despair, something has happened beneath the surface. A bright little flashing fish of hope has flicked silver fins and the water is bright and suddenly I am returned to a state of love again. Till next time. I've learned that there will always be a next time and that I will submerge in darkness and misery, but that I won't stay submerged. And each time, something has been learned under the waters. Something has been gained, and a new kind of love has grown. Sometimes the epiphany is that our way home, our way out of darkness, will look different than what we've been told it should be. Sometimes our epiphany is that no matter where we are in this darkness, God is still with us. And that God is not limited to one space and time, or spot, or one way of doing things. God is everywhere.